I want to have you turn in your Bibles to John chapter 6 for our time of study in the Word this morning. John chapter 6, we're doing a verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of John. And as we continue in our study of this book, we come this morning to John chapter 6, verse 41. And my goal is to cover uh, verses 41 through 58. And the title of the message is Eating Christ for Life. Eating Christ for Life. I need to warn you in advance that from a strictly human point of view, what Jesus is going to say in our passage today ended up proving to be a public relations disaster. His words will leave his audience grumbling and arguing and confused, and even people who formerly considered themselves his disciples uh, were unwilling to follow him any longer after they hear what he has to say in our passage today. His words in our text today will no doubt at times leave you with a furrowed brow and a perplexed look on your face. In verse 41, the text says the Jews were grumbling about him in response to what Jesus has already said prior to verse 41, just the words we studied last Sunday, forcing Jesus to say to them in verse 43, Do not grumble among yourselves. Jesus then says more things, and in response, we're told in verse 52 that the Jews began to argue with one another. In verse 60, we will see that when Jesus is done speaking in verses 53 to 59, even some of his disciples will say in verse 60, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? In verse 61, we will learn that Jesus' disciples grumbled at what Jesus said, leaving Jesus saying to them, does this cause you to stumble? And in verse 66, we will read that many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So once again, from a strictly human standpoint, What Jesus is going to say in our passage today is a PR disaster, leaving people who the day before were ready to elect him king, now walking away from him altogether. Yet, through it all, Jesus knows exactly what he is doing, and every word he speaks in our text today is intentional as he speaks to these people on the topic of how they can and must go about experiencing life through him. And so just as we begin, or before we begin into the text, I wonder how Jesus' words in this passage is going to impact you this morning. The words he speaks in this text are absolutely vital to your eternal salvation. If you are interested in gaining eternal life, then you must listen to Jesus' words and give heed to them. But once you hear what he actually says and how he goes about saying it, I wonder how you will end up responding to what Jesus says in our passage today. And I guess we're about to find out. To understand what happens in this point of Jesus' conversation with this crowd Of people, it's good to know that in verse 33, Jesus has said to them, For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. In verse 35, he says, I am the bread of life. And in verse 38, he says, For I have come down from heaven. Jesus is saying these things to the people whom he fed from five loaves and two fish the day before. He's saying these things to the people who have now, since that feeding, followed him across the sea and are now wanting a lifetime supply 
of physical bread from him. And this crowd, they're totally fine with the miracle that Jesus did the day before, but now they're coming at him and wanting him to do an even greater miracle, like calling down manna from heaven in a way that would be comparable to what happened in the days of Moses. And in response, Jesus redirects their focus and points them to himself as the bread of life, which has come down out of heaven from God. And as we pick up in verse 21 today, we're going to observe, as you see on your notes, four moves, four moves that Jesus makes to explain how one can obtain life from him. And the first of these moves, we can word it this way, Jesus explains the Father's work in those who come to him. He explains the Father's work in the hearts and the lives of those who come to him. Observe how the Jews respond to what Jesus is asserting about himself being the bread of life that has come down out of heaven from God. Beginning in verse 41, John tells us, Therefore the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. And they were saying, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? What Jesus has claimed about himself doesn't make sense to them, given what they know to be true about Jesus Many of these people know Jesus' family personally, and they know him as the son of Joseph and Mary, and their question that they are asking each other is, how can he be saying that he has come down out of heaven when we know his father and his mother? Obviously, they don't know Jesus as well as they think they know him, because they only know him according to the flesh. They know who his earthly parents are, but they know nothing of his virgin conception in the womb of Mary and that his real father is God. Notice, by the way, how in verse 41, John tells us that they are grumbling about him. This word translated grumble or grumbling speaks of the murmuring sound that ripples through a crowd when people in that crowd are angry or discontent. And this is the sound right now that is rippling through this crowd in response to what Jesus has said about himself. But notice in the text that this crowd is not grumbling to Jesus. Instead, they are turning to one another and they're grumbling with one another about Jesus These people have Jesus right in front of them whom they can ask these questions of, but they don't ask him. Instead, they turn to one another and they're literally trying to grumble their way to a right perspective on Jesus amongst themselves, asking each other this question in verse 42 which is exactly why Jesus responds to them the way that he does in verses 43 and 44. Observe what Jesus does beginning in verse 43. Jesus answered and said to them, do not grumble among yourselves. And notice what he's chastising them for. He's not merely chastising them for grumbling, but for grumbling among yourselves. In other words, he's chastising them for turning and looking to one another in order to arrive at a true understanding of him. In the mind of Jesus, such grumbling among themselves is not the way to go about learning divine truth. So Jesus is essentially saying to them, you guys can grumble among yourselves all day long about me, and you will get nowhere. What you need is the Father's help in understanding the truth about me. This is why Jesus 
says to them in verse 44, look at the text, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. He's saying, you guys don't need each other's help in order to come to me. You're just pooling your ignorance. You need my Father's help to come to a right appraisal of me and then to actually come to me for eternal life. As for those who do come to him as a result of the Father's drawing, Jesus says, I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus' language here embodies an acknowledgement that such a person will die physically, but Jesus is assuring the person whom the Father draws to him that he, Jesus, will raise him up on the day of resurrection. And look at what Jesus goes on to say in verse 45. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me, Jesus says. Jesus here is loosely quoting from the Greek translation of Isaiah 54, verse 13, where God speaks of a future day when he will cause the people of Israel to all be taught of God. And Jesus is quoting this passage and identifying what results in the lives of those who are truly taught by God in fulfillment of this prophecy, and that is that everyone taught of God will come to Jesus. And that's why Jesus says, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. There are no exceptions to this. Again, keep in mind that Jesus is speaking to a group of people who are grumbling and they're looking to one another for wisdom about Christ. And Jesus essentially is saying, you guys should be looking to God to teach you about me. You should be listening to the Father and being taught by Him. And if you do that, you will arrive at a right understanding of me and you will come to me. Notice the quick qualification Jesus provides in verse 46. He says, not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Jesus' point is that, yes, there will be people who are taught of God, who hear from the Father and who learn from Him, yet that doesn't mean that such persons have actually seen the Father the way that Jesus has seen the Father. The only person who can say that he has seen the Father in the fullest sense is Jesus Christ because he actually came from the Father. You put everything Jesus is saying together here and you realize that in order to even come to Jesus, you must be taught and drawn by the Father. And then in coming to Jesus, you're coming to the one who knows the Father the best which means that Jesus is the best person to help you to understand the Father. They both, Jesus and the Father, very much want you to know the other. And the result is that the Father leads you to Jesus. And once you come to Jesus, Jesus reveals the Father to you. And you end up in a relationship with both of them. It's a two-for-one deal. Beyond this amazing blessing, what other blessing will come to those who are taught of God and who come to Christ in this way that Jesus is speaking about here? Well, he answers that question next, which leads us to the second move that Jesus makes to explain how one can obtain life from him. Number two, he explains that all who partake of him will live forever. He explains that all who partake of him will live forever. Listen to what he says in verses 47 and 48. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. 
Notice how Jesus begins his statement with truly, truly. Clear, clearly, he's not backpedaling from his earlier statement in verse 35 when he claimed to be the bread of life there. Even though his earlier statement did not go over well with his audience. His point here is to say, I'm going to reiterate what I've already said to you earlier. If you want to partake of the bread which endures to eternal life, then you must believe that I am the bread of life, for that is what I am. If you believe, if you believe in me, you have thereby partaken of the bread of life, and you have eternal life. You won't just get eternal life in some future day. You already are in possession of that eternal life if you believe in me as the bread of life. He continues in verse 49 and following, saying, Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. And then pointing to himself, he says, this is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The people in Jesus' audience seem to have been really impressed with the miracle of the manna in the wilderness recorded in the Old Testament But guess what Jesus is saying? Those who ate the manna in the wilderness all ended up dying. They all ended up dying physically. And even more to Jesus' point, many of them died spiritually under the judgment of God because of their rebellion against God. In fact, many of the Israelites who ate the manna in the wilderness are in hell today. Because they rebelled against the Lord without repentance. So manna didn't save anybody. It gave nobody eternal life. But by way of contrast, Jesus says in verse 50 that the bread that he's talking about, which is himself, is a bread which comes down out of heaven for the purpose that one may eat of it and not die. And here he's talking about spiritual death that the partaker of him will never, ever experience. Yes, the one who eats of the bread of life will die physically, but once they are absent from the body, what happens? They are present with the Lord in heaven, more alive than they were even on earth. If the essence of spiritual death is separation from God, then the person who eats of the bread of life, which is Jesus, will never die. For as Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 38, even physical death cannot separate the Christian from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. It's for that reason that we don't fear death as believers. And in case this wasn't clear before, Jesus says in verse 51, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. You're going to recall back in verse 42 that the Jews were asking each other, how can Jesus be the bread out of heaven? How can he have come from heaven when in fact he was the son of Joseph and Mary. And it's interesting as you listen to everything Jesus says here that Jesus doesn't even bother trying to explain the mechanics of how this could be the case. He simply restates here that he is the living bread that came down out of heaven and that if anyone eats him, he will live forever. Evidently, Jesus thinks that his audience doesn't need to understand the mechanics of how it is true that Jesus came from God, yet is also the son of Joseph and Mary. They simply need to believe that he is from God, as he states it here. And Jesus has done enough miracles of healing and feeding of the 5,000 to more than demonstrate that fact. And at the end of verse 51, Jesus 
drops a truth bomb on his audience and takes matters to a whole nother level, saying, And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So Jesus is now being even more specific, pointing to his body as the bread that is given for the life of the world. And in this statement, Jesus is speaking of something that he's going to do in the future. He is speaking of himself at some point in the future, giving his flesh for the life of the world. And on this side of the cross, we know what he's referring to, right? He's talking about the moment when he will surrender himself bodily to die upon a cross so that through his death, life can come to people all over the world. And regarding that death, Jesus' language right here in this verse shows us that his death will be voluntary. He's going to give it willingly, and that his death will be substitutionary. In other words, in the giving of his flesh for the world, there will be an exchange that takes place. He gives his flesh in death, and as a result, life comes to the people of the world. He dies so that through his death, people all over the world can have life. This is what Jesus is saying right here to these people, but there's no way that these Jews listening to him right now would have even begun to comprehend the fullness of his meaning at this point, which is why they respond the way they do, which brings us to the third move that Jesus makes to explain how one can obtain life through him. Number three, he explains that eating his flesh and drinking his blood are necessary for eternal life. He explains that eating his flesh and drinking his blood are necessary for eternal life. Observe what happens in verse 52. Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat. You know, it's one thing for Jesus to refer to himself as the bread of life, but his language now has seemed to have crossed a line into profoundly unsettling territory. And these Jews are aghast at what Jesus has just said, and they begin to argue with one another about it in their attempt to figure out what could he possibly be saying? And they don't ask Jesus their question, and they don't cry out to the Father for understanding. Instead, John tells us that they turn away from Jesus and start arguing with one another about Jesus. The word translated argued here is a very strong word. It means to have a sharp disagreement to have a verbal fight. I heard a man say recently, my wife and I have never had a fight. We just have intense fellowship. <laughs> well, these people in John 6 are having a fight. And what they're trying to figure out in this verbal fight is the answer to this question. How can this man give us his flesh to eat. As the commentator Leon Morris says, the mechanics of what Jesus is suggesting bother them. And guys, they are more than just confused over mechanics. I don't think we can even begin to appreciate how mortified these Jews are by what Jesus is now saying to them. As Jesus speaks about giving them his flesh to eat, which is language that seems to suggest cannibalism to his hearers. You can write down some of these references. We'll not 
take time to read them, but Deuteronomy 28, verses 53 to 57. Deuteronomy 28, verses 53 to 57. It is a passage that is hard to read in polite company. But in that passage, cannibalism was something God foretold for Israel if they rebelled against him. God promises them in Deuteronomy, along with many other curses that he assures them of if they rebel against him, that if they rebelled against his law, they will eventually find themselves in circumstances of unimaginable deprivation and hunger that are so bad that they will resort to eating their own children. And we see similar promises in Leviticus 26, verse 29, and Jeremiah 19, verse 9. And we see such conditions realized in 2 Kings chapter 6, where two Israelite women ate one of their children because they were in such horrible circumstances under the judgment of God. And here in our passage this morning, these Jews are asking, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? They're not just confused about how this is logistically possible. They're incredulous that a man like Jesus would even be talking this way. And they're trying to figure out what severe depths of desperation Jesus must think they are in that they would have to resort to him giving them his own flesh to eat. And they're arguing with themselves about this matter when all the while Jesus is standing right there with the wisdom that they need. Well, Jesus listens in on this verbal fight that is taking place amongst themselves, and eventually he decides to speak, and in so doing, he only throws gasoline on the fire. Observe what he does in verse 53. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. On one level, Jesus is making things very personal for each person in his audience. He prefaces his assertion with another truly, truly, saying to them, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He's basically telling them that right now they do not have life within themselves. That's how dire their situation is, and the only way that they can have life in themselves is to eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, for it is their only resort. Their situation is truly so desperate that their only recourse at this point is to eat the flesh of Jesus and drink His blood in order to have life in themselves. Observe what Jesus says in verse 54, where he states things positively. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. You might want to underline the word eats here in verse 54. For it is here that Jesus begins using a new word for eat than the one that he um, was using before and that the crowd was using before. Interestingly, this word translated eat here in verse 54 is a less refined word that conveys the idea of eating aggressively, aggressively or noisily. In classical Greek, this term was used to speak of animals eating. And we all know how it is that animals care nothing about the noise that they make when they eat. And they typically don't just snack. They 
gorge themselves. They eat aggressively. Some commentators suggest that our English words munching and crunching capture Jesus' meaning here. At the very least, a good paraphrase of what Jesus is saying here is this. He who chows on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And you might hear that and think, that sounds like kind of a tacky way for Jesus to represent how people should partake of him. Like even for me, I like the word partake. It sounds sophisticated. When we have the Lord's Supper, shall we partake? I don't say shall we chow because that just doesn't sound godly or spiritual, but that's the language that Jesus is using now. Jesus is using this kind of cannibalistic language and the language of voracious, noisy eating here. And you might hear that and just say, that rubs me wrong. And if you feel that way, then you are positioned to appreciate what Jesus' original audience was feeling in this moment. Only they would be feeling even more offended than you. Again, the Old Testament law presented cannibalism as something that only the most desperate persons under the judgment of God would ever engage in. But the law of Moses also prohibited the drinking of blood and even eating the meat of animals that still had the blood in it. Yet here is Jesus talking about munching and crunching on the flesh of the Son of Man and drinking his blood? Wow. Seriously, guys, these Jews had no categories in their heads to even process what Jesus is saying here. The only categories they did have in their heads to use were in the realm of things that were unthinkable and abhorrent to them. The language that Jesus is using here is raw language that would grate against the religious sensibilities of the people in his audience. But he is making an astounding promise that we should not lose sight of. Yes, we are under God's judgment, and yes, our condition is most desperate, yet the person who in those circumstances eats Jesus' flesh and drinks his blood is immediately ushered into the possession of eternal life. And he is being assured here that Jesus will raise him up on the last day. How can what Jesus is promising here really be true? Observe what he says in verse 55, where Jesus says, For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. The fact that Jesus is speaking of his flesh and blood separately here in these verses makes it clear that he's talking about his death, the life of the body, was in the blood, and if the blood is removed from the body such that it could be drunk, then that implies that a death has occurred. So once again, Jesus is pointing to his death here in a way that everyone would come to understand later. Jesus continues pressing home his point, which leads us to the fourth and final move that Jesus makes to explain how one can obtain life from him. Number four, Jesus explains how it is that life results from eating his flesh and drinking his blood. He does get into logistics here. So Jesus has already said that the person who eats his flesh and drinks his blood has eternal life and will be raised up by Christ on the last day. But how does, first of all, how does a person go about eating Jesus' flesh and drinking his blood. Observe what Jesus says in verse 56. He who eats, and again, this is the same word that was introduced in verse 54. He who chows on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. 
Now, we might look at this and say that this abiding in Him and Him and us is describing a result that happens in the lives of those who eat His flesh and drink His blood. But I would agree with those commentators like Leon Morris who would suggest that in this statement of Jesus in verse 56, Jesus is giving what is almost a definition of eating His flesh and drinking His blood. In other words, when Jesus speaks about someone eating his flesh and drinking his blood, what he's really talking about is somebody abiding in Christ and allowing Christ to abide in them. Where the eater is in Christ and Christ is in the eater. Suddenly it becomes apparent that all this talk of eating Christ's flesh and drinking his blood is at least in part a metaphor for abiding in him and allowing him to abide in you. What does it mean to abide in Jesus? Well, Jesus is going to explain this in greater detail in John 15, and we're going to learn there in John 15 that abiding in Jesus means to cling to him the way that a branch would cling to a vine so as to receive your spiritual life and your sustenance from him. And what results from that clinging to Jesus is that his life and his goodness passes into you to where he is in you and it leaves you thriving with his life. How does this dynamic happen? In verse 57, Jesus explains the logic of it all. He says, as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who chows on me, he also will live because of me. We learn something here about the nature of the relationship between the Father and the Son, Evidently, Jesus dependently abides in the Father and has the Father abiding in him such that Jesus is always receiving his life from the Father. And Jesus here in verse 57 is saying, in the same way that I abide in the Father and live because of him, so he who eats me or abides in me and allows me to abide in him that person will live because of me. And the very life in them will be the life of the Father that is also in me, Jesus is saying. Jesus delivers a summary statement in verse 58, gathering up all he has said. He points to himself and says to his troubled audience, this is the bread. This is the bread. Look at me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who chows on this bread will live forever. Jesus is saying once again, I'm not the kind of bread that the fathers ate in the wilderness and many of them spiritually died under the judgment of God Not at all. He who eats of me will live with God forever. So we're going to stop here uh, in verse 58, but let's take a little bit of time to ponder some things that are clear at this point from what Jesus says. And first, we're going to revisit an issue that we've already kind of answered, but I want to elaborate on this answer. The first issue is, what does actually eating Jesus' flesh and drinking his blood entail? What does it look like? Well, as we just learned from verse 56, a person abiding in Jesus and allowing Jesus to abide in them is doing something that, according to verse 56, is tantamount to eating Jesus' flesh and drinking his blood. For in verse 56, Jesus says, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood, here's what he's doing. He's abiding in me and I 
in him. But we actually get a little more insight on this matter back in verse 35, where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Just let those words sink into you. Based on Jesus' language in verse 35, evidently, simply to come to Jesus and simply to believe in Jesus is to partake of him such that you won't hunger or thirst anymore, right? This is why St. Augustine wrote centuries ago, and I quote, believe and you have eaten, unquote. Believe and you have eaten. Believe in Christ and you have thereby eaten his flesh and you have drunk his blood. It's that simple. So putting verse 35 and 56 together, we can say that a person who comes to Jesus and believes in him and abides in him and allows Jesus to abide in him is thereby doing the equivalent of partaking of Jesus, eating Jesus' flesh, and drinking his blood. Is that clear? Uh, I think that much is clear, but once we arrive at this understanding, we're, we're left asking ourselves, Jesus could have just said that. He could have just stood before this audience and said, hey, come to me and believe in me and abide in me and let me abide in you and you'll have eternal life. But instead, he speaks of the need to eat his flesh, to chow on his flesh, and to drink his blood using language that does not fall easily on our ears, nor did it fall easily on the ears of Jesus' original audience. Such talk is confusing. It smacks of cannibalism and was definitely offensive to the sensibilities of Jesus' Jewish audience who only thought of such things like cannibalism as something that only the most tragically desperate person under the judgment of God would ever do. So why would Jesus choose to speak in such graphic, unsettling terms to this audience, and even to us. You know why? Because mankind's condition under God's judgment truly is that desperate. Our condition apart from Christ truly is so deplorably bad that we must resort to eating Christ's flesh and drinking his blood in order to alleviate our desperate condition and find any hope of life. For people who are under God's judgment in this way, and this is all of us outside of Christ, there's only one thing available for us to eat and drink to remedy our condition, and that is the flesh and the blood of Jesus. And our salvation depends upon us resorting to him and to chowing on his flesh and drinking his blood to find eternal life. You see, guys, we're, we're not, as men and women in a fallen world, we're not just slightly imperfect people who've messed up and we need to tweak a few things here and there in order to have eternal life. No, we are in the direst of straits under God's judgment. And our only recourse is to descend upon Jesus and devour his flesh and drink his blood like the desperately starving people that we are outside of Christ. Jesus does not here in our text today engage in refined and delicate speech 
because mankind is not in refined and delicate circumstances. Desperate times call for stark language, and Jesus is faithful to give us that in our passage today in order to teach us that he is the only hope. I think Jesus also speaks in such graphic language here because something graphic and offensive is actually going to be happening in the months ahead of this moment in John 6. And Jesus' language here in this text is designed to prepare us for this graphic thing that is going to happen. What will happen is that Jesus will be physically bound and lashed and crowned with thorns and then nailed to a cross. He will give his flesh over to such treatment and then he will shed his blood and die. And then afterwards, a spear will be thrust into his side to prove that he is dead. And this will all happen because Jesus chooses to allow it to happen and because it absolutely needed to happen for you and I to have a way of salvation. At the cross and through his death, at the cross, Jesus voluntarily gives his flesh for the life of the world such that his blood will become separated from his flesh. And if what Jesus says in our passage today makes you grumble and turn away from him, you can imagine what the Jews will do when they hear the message of salvation through his physical death at the cross. They're so troubled by what Jesus is saying right now. Just imagine their offense in the coming months when they begin to hear the preaching of the cross. That will scandalize them far, far more, which is why Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 in verse 23 says, we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a scandalon, and to the Gentiles, foolishness. But if the Jews in Jesus' audience would have stopped to think and allowed themselves to be taught by the Father in this moment, they would have seen how the Old Testament foretold of this astounding reality. At the very first Passover, God told the children of Israel in Egypt to slay the Passover lamb and to put its blood on the doorpost of their homes in order that their family would be protected from the angel of death. And then after doing that, God told them to eat the lamb during their Passover meal so that they might be nourished and strengthened for their journey into freedom out of Egypt. We've already learned in John 1 that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist already told us that in John 1 verse 29. In other words, Jesus is the Passover lamb who will be slain at the cross. His shed blood will provide for us protection from God's judgment for those who believe in him. And then those who are saved through him will do what? They will feast upon him in order that they might have strength for their journey into the freedom that is given to them in Christ. For this reason, it should not surprise us at all that the very first Lord's Supper ever held was connected to the Passover meal on the very night of the Jewish Passover when Jesus handed his disciples the bread and said, take this and eat it, every one of you. This is my body, which is for you. And then he takes the cup and says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And after doing that for the very first time, Jesus then went out from there, and by 3 p.m. the next day, he had died upon a cross, 
as our Passover lamb. And to this very day, when we celebrate the Lord's table in our morning service once a month and our care groups on many of the other Sundays, we are eating the bread that represents Jesus' body and we are drinking the cup that represents his blood. And when we do this, we are doing more than just trafficking in symbols. Write down this reference, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16. 1 Corinthians 10, 16, the Apostle Paul says to the Corinthians and to all of us as Christians, is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Paul's language here makes it absolutely clear that when you and I as believers partake of the bread and the cup, we are literally sharing in or communing with or fellowshipping with the blood and the body of Jesus not just with Christ, but with his blood and with his body. And you ask me, so what are the mechanics of how that happens? I don't know. I don't know. But such language by Paul makes it essential that we appreciate that there is a wonderful and deeply mysterious way in which we enter into an experience of communing with Jesus' body and blood when we partake of the bread and the cup at the Lord's Supper. Here at Cornerstone, we do not believe that the bread and the cup become the literal body and blood of Jesus like some believe, but we can say that somehow partaking of these elements at the Lord's table brings us into a real communion with His body and blood in a way that is real and yet shrouded in wonderful mystery. And we don't have to understand the mechanics of how that happens in order to receive the benefit of it, right? As C.S. Lewis says, at the Lord's table, Jesus doesn't say, take and understand. No, he says, take and eat. And that's what we do, even though there is mystery here beyond what we can understand or even quantify. Given the way Jesus speaks in our passage today, it is so appropriate that you and I, in obedience to him many times a year, when we gather on Sunday mornings and in our care groups, that we eat the bread that represents his body and we drink the cup that represents his blood, and that this is the one ordinance that Jesus wants to be in the rhythm of every Christian's ongoing experience. And when we eat of the bread and we drink of the cup, we are representing a truth that should characterize all of our lives every day. And that is that by faith, we are continually chowing on Jesus Christ, feasting upon him, who gave his flesh and his blood for the life of the world. Finally, I love how Jesus corrects this crowd of people for grumbling and arguing amongst themselves in their attempt to understand the truth about him. Maybe you're here this morning and you're You yourself are trying to figure out what you think of Jesus, but you're trying to figure him out on your own. Maybe your thought is that you'll read and discuss and you'll argue and sometimes even grumble and you'll do deep thinking and engage with others and hopefully you might be able to reach a point where you become convinced of the truth about Jesus and then at that point you might come to him. The problem with that approach is that it'll never work. 
In our passage today, Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father draw him. That's what Jesus says. And he teaches in the next verse that a person has to be taught of God in order to come to him. So the first step, I think, to coming to Jesus is to recognize that your condition is more desperate than you realize. You are in the direst of straits and in conditions so desperate that you can't even come to a right appraisal of Jesus on your own, much less come to him without the Father teaching you and drawing you to him. And you are in such dire straits that what you need to hear this morning is not polite and delicate talk. You need to hear that your only recourse is to eat the flesh of Jesus and to drink his blood. But with God the Father teaching you and God the Father drawing you, you can come to an understanding of this. God can bring you into an understanding of all of this and enable you to believe in Jesus and thereby partake of him for eternal life. So if you are trying to figure all of this out, pray to the Father. Ask him to teach you. Ask him to draw you to his son. Then open the Bible, read the Bible, and ask God to show Christ to you. Come and talk with us. We would love to not give you our own ideas, but to point you to the Bible, God's word, through which the Father teaches you about Jesus. And if you were to come to the Father in this humble spirit and ask him to teach you and to draw you to his son and to the truth about him, if that's your prayer, I can assure you that's a prayer that the Father will be happy to answer. I'll just say one thing as I wrap up. One of the things that has hit me, especially over the last couple days, is it's so obvious from this passage that as a non-believer outside of Christ, our circumstances under the judgment of God are so desperately dire that our only recourse is to descend upon Jesus and to chow on his flesh and drink his blood. But you know what? Even as Christians, our circumstances are much different in Christ. We still need to feast upon him every day. You will never grow spiritually beyond the need to continuously be chowing on Jesus, feasting upon him. It's what your soul needs. And I just fear sometimes, even looking at my own life, um, that, yeah, we partake of Jesus, but do we just snack? It's just an occasional snack. Or do you feast on him? Let's commit ourselves to understanding our circumstances and our dire needs, needs such that we are committed this week to feast upon him so that we can have him abiding in us as we abide in him and we can have his life thriving in us. Let's pray and ask God to help us to do that. Lord God, this is such a, in some ways, a, a passage that takes us in strange directions and yet there's a beauty and a wonder here that even as believers, some of us who have known the Lord for decades, we still have to admit we don't fully understand. And yet there's enough that is here that we do understand that 
can take us all deeper into really understanding what life in Christ really should look like. I pray for us who are believers in you, Lord, that we would not be snackers. Jesus, you're not just a treat. Uh, You're not just the cherry on top of some cake that we get from elsewhere. No, you, you are the bread of life. You are our only recourse. We can feed on anything else, and it will leave us not only unsatisfied, but even more hungry and thirsty than before. Our only recourse is to descend upon you and to feast upon you through faith and through abiding in you and allowing you to abide in us and that we keep on coming to you and keep on believing in you and keep on abiding in you day by day and experiencing the blessing that comes as a result. And for those who are here this morning, Lord, that have never done that, I... um, I just pray that they would not be like Jesus' audience that's going to turn and walk away from him, not to walk with him anymore, but that they would be both alarmed and alerted by the language you use here, that yes, this is their dire circumstances, their need is this great, that their only recourse is to eat your flesh and drink your blood. You, the one who would give your life upon a cross bodily for the salvation of the world. Touch their hearts, Lord, and draw them to yourself. We'll give you the praise and the glory. We just ask all of these things, Lord, in the name of Jesus and all God's people said.